Jeannie Finley in the trail studio today. Welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Good to be here. The, uh, your accent. <laughs> Fantastic. First interview of the I mean, year with an accent for the Big Sky Doc Fest. So thanks I'm for trying my best. Thank you for bringing that. <laughs> thank you. Also, I've been trying to get caught up on your career. Woo! You've had a lot of stuff going. I've been making a few films. Made some films. There's a retrospective we're going to talk about. Again, the Big Sky Documentary Film Festival going on now through the 25th. But in the studio today, Jeannie Finley, one of Britain's most distinctive documentarists, award-winning work for cinema and television, intimate stories, to say the least. It seems like I've read a little bit about you. Uh, there was a Guardian article where you were quoted as saying that you have um, never not cried in an editing suite when you're editing some of these stories. Oh, yeah. Um, I think the fil the films that I make have got a lot of humour in them. I like mm -hmm. gallows humour and, you know, a lot of British people have got a really twisted or interesting sense of humour. So I'm here for that. <laughs> Absolutely. But also I want to um, map the small details of someone's life. And usually that can be really moving mm -hmm. and um, a lot of audiences cry. And so do I. Whenever I'm cutting a film, whether I'm cutting someone giving birth or someone dying, you know, or it's just a small moment of recognition. Uh, I feel, you know, we call it totes emotion. Mm -hmm. I feel totes emotion about stuff. And I think that's okay. Cause I think crying in the dark surrounded by strangers is like one of the greatest pleasures in life. And that's why it's so great to bring these films uh, to Missoula, bring them back here yeah, and be able to show them at the festival, the big sky. I came in on Monday morning and I said to uh, a couple of colleagues, I said, went to the Big Sky Doc Fest this weekend. I'm not crying. You are. Because <laughs> um, I think what you said really resonates. Um, something so intimate. And sometimes the stories when I'm reading about them, like a lot of your films, I get a little emotional just reading about them. But it's really interesting what kinds of stories get emotional. Oh, for, for sure. those of us in the dark watching them yeah i mean crying with strangers crying with strangers it's such a good feeling but i think um the power of documentary is that you can fall in love with someone that you you've never met and you didn't realize you needed that person in your life mm -hmm. and then by the end of 90 minutes you know you've been on a journey with them and it can be it, it they can cut deep yeah even if it's just a small little something something you know, it can uh, reach in and grab your tears. It's a good, it's a good feeling. <laughs> and it's, it's, there's a catharsis to it. Like instead of trying to protect yourselves, ourselves from things that might make us sad or might give us some emotion, there's this cathartic uh, thing for us in the audience. I think so, yeah. Um, especially as a Brit, you know, oh, right. we're not traditionally a super emotional um, the old stiff upper lip, right? Yeah, but I would say that actually, like I've just been on a sold out UK tour of Your Fat Friend, my most recent mm -hmm. film. The amount of sort of sobbing and crying yeah. <laughs> was great, as, as well as um, humour, as well as laughter. There's a lot of guts that goes into it. I'm thinking, let's just dive into Big Fat Friend. Your Fat um, Friend. Your Fat Friend. Um Let's sorry, let's dive into that one in terms of 
you're asking somebody to just bare their soul to some extent um, yeah, when I mean, you put I would, a camera on them. Yeah, I would say that that's sort of the deal with all the films I make, really. Yeah. I'm not doing this in a half-hearted way. Um, your fat friend tells the story of Aubrey Gordon. She's a, um, she was an unknown, unknown blogger writing about her experience as being a fat lady about town mm-hmm. and some of the experiences that she'd had in her life. And she went viral. I started filming her six years ago. And by the time that we finished the film, she was a New York Times bestseller with wow. an audience of 60 million mm. on her podcast. So she goes through this enormous sort of change over the period of the filming. Mm-hmm. But the most sort of meaningful change for her is when her family truly see what she's talking about. It's oh. one thing for the public to see yeah. you, but everyone wants their parents. Those, or the those people that are close to you. For sure. You want to you wanna be visible. To the people that you love. To be seen. Absolutely. That's showing at 8.15 at the Wilma Theater coming up this Friday. And I suggest uh, everyone in the audience that would like to take a listen to a look at that film. Go to Big Sky Documentary Film Festival right now uh, org and get your tickets for that show. Because this thing has gotten really popular. Uh, continues to, to increase. Yeah, it's been... Um We've just taken out to UK cinemas. It's like number one streaming on Curzon at Home at the moment. We've been doing global watch parties. And um, this is a film I made for myself. I wanted to just explore something. Mm-hmm. I'm the parent of a teenager. Yeah. When I started making the film, it I made me think about the way that I wish I'd been sort of treated with tenderness as a teenager. So mm-hmm. I made the film I wanted to see. And we premiered at Tribeca and I just sort of thought, you know, I've made this little film. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the reaction has been wild. We won the Audience Award at the prestigious Sheffield Documentary Festival, which is the biggest... Congratulations. ...doc fest in the UK. It's amazing. And we've been... We've just been selling everything out. It's been wild. So I'm interested to see what Montana audiences take from this. Right, right. And I know this one's headed that way. Nick Davis, um, wouldn't you agree? You know, the, the, the doc, you can get shut out if you don't get your tickets now. You can. It's the new Missoula. Yes. yes and it's the doc fest. Fortunately, we have a few of Jeannie's, uh, films at the Wilma, which is the, um, obviously the largest capacity, but certainly for the screenings at, uh, the Roxy and the Zach, we would encourage folks to, uh, reserve those seats well in advance. So, so the retrospective, um, gets underway tomorrow. Uh, is that correct? 315, the Jeannie Finley retrospective with Nottingham Lace and Sound It Out. Can we just give a little, <laughs> sure. a little focus to those two films? Yeah, these are films I made. Um, Nottingham Lace, I think I made it in 2009, maybe. Mm-hmm. And um, I was asked to make a film about the last surviving lace factory in Nottingham, where I live. And they survive by using Victorian machines so they're Mm -hmm. creating lace in the same way that it would have been made um 200 years ago and they make you know like whenever a royal gets married they have Mm -hmm. lace on their garment Mm -hmm. that was made there at Clooney Lace so I I made a film there and then quite quickly afterwards I made a feature called Sound It Out. Sound It Out is about 
it's about the time where I grew up. It's a film about men and music, oh. but it's about the last surviving vinyl record shop in Teesside in the northeast of England. Mm. It's um, it's a hard area that sells hard music. So there's a lot of uh, heavy metal right. <laughs> and yeah. machina, which is a kind of tinny dance music. It means machine in Portuguese. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's this sort of, yeah, tinny dance music that lads do live emceeing and rapping to. Oh, that's cool. I'm, I'm making a note for oh, my further really, study. It's a super um, sweet, lovely film about the way that music can tell the soundtrack. Yeah. You know, soundtracks are live. Uh-huh. You know, I can't remember when I press like purchase on iTunes, but I can remember the vinyl records that I saved up my mm-hmm. money to buy. Right. This I, I feel the same. Yeah. And in this town, we've got vinyl geeks out there. There's a turntable in our studio. Oh, very good. And um, we've got these three great record shops uh, in town that are selling vinyl. Yeah, I heard that Mike Steinberg is Mike Steinberg at the Roxy Theater. He's yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, I heard he opened a record shop. Yeah, he has he's one. my old friend. I'm gonna I'm gonna go and look him up. We uh, you know we approached him and said, hey, you know, let's uh, let's advertise this thing. Let's make it as big. And he just kind of he, the look in his eyes was, this is a fun hobby. Mm-hmm. This is something I'm doing that's cool on the side. <laughs> that would be, of course, Slant Street Records. Yeah. We have to give a shout out to Ear Candy and we have to give a shout out to Rock and Rudy's as well. The fact that this is a very unique thing to have. Mm. This neighborhood, I feel like I can almost sense what the people are going to be like. Yeah, they're pretty. Um, it was more always more of a community center than um a record shop it was somewhere for people to go and hang out and I realized um I used to go in there quite a bit um because I was friends with um Tom who ran the shop and um I kept threatening to make a film about his shop and then one day (laughs) I just showed up with my camera I was like let's do this let's do this and um yeah that had um, that film had a wild sort of ride it was released in a lot of countries and yeah. So that one's called Sounded Out. I'm yeah. speaking with Jeannie Finley, uh, director of documentary films and the focus of the retrospective at the Big Sky Documentary Film Festival going on now into the weekend. So we head to 7.30 uh, tomorrow night and the retrospective continues with Love Takes and also Goth Cruise. And when <laughs> I was interviewing the festival director, Rachel Gregg, um, earlier this week, I flipped open the booklet and it just went right to Goth Cruise. And I thought that was hilarious. Yeah. And the idea that that you clearly know and that I've been near Goth folks, but the idea that these, um, well, let's just run it down. What is a Goth for people who are like, I've never heard that before. <laughs> what, a Goth? I guess someone who, a Goth is someone who wears black mainly mm-hmm. and is interested in dark music and maybe the darker side of light. I think someone in my film sort of says that um, they're the darkness so people can have their light, um, that you need balance in this world. But my film is about um, 150 American goths going on holiday (laughs) to Bermuda with 2,500 elders from uh, New Jersey. So we're talking about folks that don't necessarily work on a suntan year round. Oh no, they wear goth. They come out goth at night. Block, yeah, <laughs> which is like fifty SPF. And um, I don't know. I was 
I really wanted to make a film about older goths. Right. I went to the wedding of an old school friend. Would you say sort of Generation X, as we would call yeah, them in Gen the States? Yeah, Generation X goths. Uh-huh. Um, who had sort of found that first time around. You know, they listened to Susie and the Banshees or uh, Bella Lugosi's dead and were like, I'm in, I found I, I found had that my queued people. up, but it's nine minutes long. <laughs> oh yeah, it's a banger. Uh, and The Cure, of course, and, <laughs> yeah. and, and some of those bands, and then you can really uh, go off the deep end. So they're all on, a, you put them on a boat. Or they're, yeah, they put well, themselves on a boat. Well, I knew that I wanted to make a film about older goths and then I read about the goth cruise and I just sort of, I just had so many questions. Like, <laughs> can you be at your most goth in a neon lit cruise ship with a pina colada in your hand? Um, also, what is it about goth music or the goth subculture that appeals to people so that they're goth for life? Mm -hmm. And so I contacted the goth cruise and just said, um, yeah, can I come and make a film with you? I think we pitched it to the Independent Film Channel. It was pretty much a two-word pitch. Mm -hmm. And they were like, yeah, we're in. Were some of the subjects shy? Like, oh, I don't uh, yeah. prefer to remain in the shadows. I mean, <laughs> uh, I would say that all of my films are populated by shy people. Mm -hmm. My, I'm doing a masterclass tomorrow, and the masterclass is called Shy People Telling Small Stories Quietly. My camera is a loud hailer. And I think the the thing that I'm interested in is making films with people that might not necessarily have the spotlight. You know, right. our world is dominated by alpha characters who may not always have our best interests at heart, especially if we look at politics. <clears throat> maybe, it would, yeah. maybe it would be good if we could hear from the quieter people because the act of filming them is an act of amplification. Someone can be the quietest, softly spoken person, but if you film them and then project them on a cinema screen, can have a really big impact. That really interests <laughs> me. That's that's really great. And I had read that in some of my research leading Ooh, into this. The Guardian article the said, research. you know, like enough of enough of sort of the, especially the toxic side of all that, but also just the boisterous side of alpha males. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of, our world is very diverse and I think it's time for diversity of experiences and opinions to be reflected in the media that we see. So, you know, I'm just one woman in Nottingham, England, making the films, yeah. consistently making films. But I want to, as an independent filmmaker, I have the luxury of choosing the films that I want to make films, the stories that I want to make films about. I've only sort of said yes two times those films are here um, to Game of Thrones. Um, I was embedded on the final season of Game of Thrones. So I made a film called wow. The Last Watch. And then I made a film called Seahorse, which is about a trans guy, trans British guy, Freddie McConnell, about his journey to get pregnant and have a baby as a man. That's got to be a wild ride. Yeah. And emotional and Yeah, all I made the those films at the same time. So it was a very... <laughs> Wow. Um, sort of, yeah, it was a wild journey, but it's the same approach. You know, I want to make tender stories where people recognize themselves in the final product. Mm -hmm. um, the Last Watch was, was very just weird and funny to be invited on the biggest television show in the world at that point. Mm -hmm. And we're talking... Enormous. They're, all the sets are 360 degrees. 
So when you're looking at a castle, they've built that castle. Yeah. It's just been, like they built um, King's Landing on a car park in Northern Ireland. So I watched them <laughs> construct it. I was there at the meeting where they were like, oh yeah, we'll just build it on this car park that's mm -hmm. next to a tourist route where people can see in. <laughs> it, it, it says a lot about you that you were invited in for that big, big moment. That yeah, season. was wild. I got an email from a producer I know in Ireland saying, HBO are going to call you tomorrow, take the call. Um, and I had, so I like Googled the people and the only thing I could see was Game of Thrones. And at that point, I think I'd watched two episodes. Oh, gee. Oh, yeah. But I, I understand fandom and I think a curiosity for the world will yeah. take you a long way. Obviously, by the time I started making the film, I'd watched everything, but it was it was pretty wild. Like three weeks later, I was on a plane to Los Angeles being interviewed by the people that had, who make the show. Right. So I was watching like some of the key scenes. I was on the treadmill in my gym, in the gym in the hotel beforehand, watching uh, Battle of the Bastards, <laughs> trying mm -hmm. to get it crammed in my brain. And then I had a meeting with the showrunners and got all the names of the characters wrong. Oh, gee, yeah. But they didn't care. They Been there before, me. hey, Nick Davis. <laughs> well, howdy. We all but they just wanted me to, um, you know, they let me make a real film. And yeah. I asked them if I could wander around set for four months and find my characters um, to concentrate on the final season. And they were like, yeah. Go ahead. That is, that's so cool. And um, the idea that you were moving between that elaborate spectacle over to this smaller yet equally important story of a trans man giving birth. Mm. Is that hard for you to make a transition from <laughs> subject to subject? It was challenging to balance everything just on a logistical sense I yeah. ended up having a team of around 10 people for Game of Thrones and we had a whole production base set on you know on set we had a trailer and and all the stuff and then often on Seahorse there was me me and Freddie or me and a DP and Freddie but mm -hmm. often it was just the two of us just me following wow. around with the camera and, just, and you want to be there in present tense so my camera was there when the baby was conceived <laughs> And my camera was there when he gave birth. So it was really emotional to follow the whole journey. That's not a connection that's easily, that's not like a normal business relationship where you say, hey, great doing business with you. Have a great life. See you later. <laughs> that seems like something where you'd want to remain in contact. For sure. When um, uh, Freddie's child is, I would describe them as being in my bones. Mm -hmm. I have a really sort of bone deep connection with that child because I was there. I don't know. We keep in touch and I occasionally see them. They came bounding over to me quite recently and said, I've seen the film that you made about me being born. And I was like, yeah, yeah. 